What's up, everyone? This is episode number 68 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Before I jump into some recent hobby happenings, I want to give a quick shout out to Christina from the House of Jordans podcast. Um, she was gracious enough to invite me onto her YouTube show called Christina's Corner. And we recorded an episode a few weeks ago. It was released on Tuesday night. I know some of you have already tuned into that. And we've gotten some good feedback from that. Thank you very much. Um, I will warn you, I talk a lot on there. However, it, it was really fun for me to be a part of that because I'm always talking about cards. It's rare that I actually get to show some of them off. So before I even started today, I wanted to at least start with that. Christina, thanks again for having me. Um, and then you guys, if you want to check that out, you can find that interview on the House of Jordan's YouTube channel. All right, uh, on to hobby happenings. The first thing I want to talk about is National Treasures. And there's a lot that could be said about this product. I might even do an entire episode on it soon. Uh, but right now, I, I just want to point out that there's not a lot of this product being opened. And I've noticed that some of the breakers that would normally fly through cases of this in the first week, they're struggling to fill these things in any way, be it team breaks, player breaks, serial numbered breaks, it's all a struggle, and rightfully so. Uh, when it, you know, It's the same massive sticker dump that it's been for the last several years, except now it's at a much, much higher price point. And I know some of the group breakers that I've seen have even turned comments off, or they're really policing the comments during their breaks. You know, I know trolls are one thing, like, you know, people shouldn't go in and just troll but if you can't handle the backlash that comes from passing a disaster like this onto your customer base, then maybe you shouldn't be breaking it. And I want to extend a, a major kudos to those of you that have said enough is enough and you're not buying into this stuff or you're trying to find ways to support more quality products instead. Now, that's a personal choice. I'm not here to tell you what to do. But I think those of you that have made that decision this week, um, I think it's weeks like this one that should send a pretty big message to Panini when it comes to future high-end releases. There is a breaking point. We didn't think we would see it in 2020, but there might actually be a breaking point. All right. Uh, next, Tuesday night, I had a lot of you sending me pictures or messages about a video that Giannis posted on his social media so first off, thanks to those of you that messaged me and, and chatted with me some about that. This video has since been removed or made private, I guess, but it featured a bunch of really nice Giannis cards and had the caption, my card collection so far. So at first I didn't think much of this. I thought, you know, well, it's pretty cool that an athlete collects their own cards. If I had my own cards, I'm pretty sure I'd collect them too, but then people noticed that there were quite a few one-of-ones there, including a mosaic black auto from that was pulled from the checklist last year. If you go online, you can look at the checklist um, on one of the websites, I think Cardboard Connection, uh, and it mentions the black one-of-one does not include Giannis, but it includes the other ones in the, in the list. 
So um, there was also a triple auto on there that only has his autograph on it. So it was clear that these weren't necessarily cards he got from the secondary market. And keep in mind, Giannis is a premier veteran signer for Panini right now. Um, so I, I posted a picture of it just to kind of see what people would say to see what the conversation would look like. There's a lot of different perspectives. Uh, I know some of you responded that he's probably just fulfilling a lot of old redemptions. That could be the case, uh, although he called it his collection. Um, and then if it wasn't for the black mosaic auto that was pulled from the checklist, I might think the same thing. But we don't look, we don't know for sure. Before I jump to conclusions and blame him, I think we need a little more context. However, if people were buying these products expecting Giannis Logoman cards that never actually make it back to Panini and were never going to make it back, then Panini has some explaining to do. Hopefully we find out more about all of that in the coming week. But like I said, I don't want to jump to conclusions just yet. However, it doesn't look great. All right. The last thing I want to share before today's main segment is Panini's announcement of a new Prism product that comes out on August 21st. And no, it's not the Prism Update set that I lobbied for earlier in the year, although we are getting Prism Update in Chronicles. Um, but it's, it's Prism WNBA. And we haven't seen a lot of WNBA cards from Panini, but they have been up in the numbers over the last couple of years. I know they did an optic release, and I had a friend that opened a lot of that. He said he really enjoyed it. Honestly, in today's card climate, it makes sense for them to try WNBA Prism as well. Uh, so what is this product going to look like? We don't know everything, but uh, here's some of what we do know so far. It looks like there will be retail and hobby versions of this. The blowout blog post that I saw, it didn't specify, but it looks, uh, they kept talking about, uh, you know, what you would find in boxes. I'm assuming it would be the hobby box. Uh, but like I said, they didn't specify, but it said that these boxes are going to contain 12 packs that feature 12 cards a piece. You can find two autographs and 22 prism cards in each box. And when they say prism cards, they mean like the refractors, right? The silvers and all the parallels. Um, I doubt the parallel rainbow will be as big as it is with the NBA set but we don't know. They, they showed some of the big ones, I think, like gold and, and black and then the black gold. Um, the tough ones are going to be hobby exclusive, but um, who knows what we're going to find in retail. I'm sure we'll be finding out more about that as we get closer to release date, which once again is August 21st. Okay, uh, so that's actually a pretty good segue to the main segment of today's show, because without today's guest, who knows if we'd even have a prison product. This week I chatted with Jim Esker, who is the art director for a company called Signs and Glassworks, which that company was also called Chromium Graphics. And remember, I've talked about SGW several times before. Take any finest or chrome card from the 90s, uh, and you should see those three capital letters, SGW, on the back somewhere. Uh, and then Jim is also the co-creator of the Chromium process. So this conversation was exciting for me because as collectors, we talk a lot about Chromium cards, but we don't know a lot about their origins. I enjoyed this one a lot, and I hope you do as well. All right, Jim, so as we all know, there's a lot going on right now, and everyone's routine has been drastically changed by the whole coronavirus. So 
every time I sit down with someone and uh, have a conversation, I like to start off with a, a really basic but an important question. How are you doing right now? I'm doing fine. I've been an introvert most of my life, so staying at home is kind of natural to me. Yeah, I think um, my wife is, uh, she's more on the go than I am. I think she's been affected by this a lot more than I have. I'm kind of the same way, uh, just kind of tucked into my little office here. Um, so I'm excited to have you on the show today. There are a number of different places that we can go with this interview. You've had quite the career. I want to try and touch on a lot of different stuff. And your website notes that you have over 25 years of professional design and creative expertise in brand identity and design. I believe I read that you also have over 45 years of professional experience as a whole. You've had major clients like Disney, Microsoft, Nintendo, and Topps. Obviously, we're going to focus more on sports cards today because that's what this show is about. But I don't want to just casually toss aside all the other cool stuff that you've done as well. So we're going to learn a little bit more about you first. So I guess a good starting point would be maybe your schooling um, and we could figure out um, how exactly you got involved in graphic design. Well, basically, I grew up as an artist. I mean, I started out as a little kid drawing crayon drawings in cardboard boxes and pretending they're spaceships, that sort of thing. And then as I got the third grade, um, I won my first art contest with like a food poster kind of thing, and I won a Marmaduke book as a prize or something. I thought, this is great. I can, I can make a living later on when I grow up and do artwork and scribble. So when I got to high school, they had a, um, a vocational wing in the school they just built, and uh, they had commercial art, so it was a perfect thing for me. And they had uh, basically two hours of uh, theory behind commercial art and then two hours of actual working on the artwork, that sort of thing. So I spent four hours a day in there for two years. So that's kind of how I got my background in art. And then uh, when I graduated in 1975 from high school, I didn't want to stay in Ohio where I grew up. I wanted to go somewhere where there's an ocean. So I was either down to Florida or out to uh, California. So I ended up in San Diego. Okay, so, and it was there, um, I think you started working, was it the company called Silk Screen Shirts Incorporated? That's correct. It was a small, when I first got to California, I got off the bus, I, I went down, I wanted to see the ocean since I'm from Ohio, I, and I walked all the way down to where the beach was, and I saw a little building there, and up in the building, they had an art desk in the window. I thought, well, this is great. Maybe I can get a job as an artist there. So I ran all the way back home, got my portfolio that I dragged from Ohio, Took it back up to there, and they happened to be looking for an artist. So I got my very first art job when I was 18 doing T-shirt art. And it, it seemed like it was a good fit because you were there, what, about 15 years? Long time. Um, basically, they made me art director right away, and the company grew pretty quickly. Um, and the uh, company probably moved to two or three buildings after that first building I was talking about. We were doing mostly for, it was popular back then, was the you know roller skating and then also skateboards and surfing designs. And I was you know, doing for Rip Curl and Local Motion and a lot of the other companies doing that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, like you said, I was probably there about 13 years or so. Got kind of burned out on uh, doing t-shirt art after a while and I wanted to expand. And at that time, the uh, computers were starting to do graphics. And I saw that, you know, you're going to be a dinosaur if you don't have a computer in your, in your art department because that's where everything is going to go. But those people didn't believe that that's what was going to happen. And I gave them a year. I said, buy a computer within a year and I'll stay with the company as your art director. But if you don't, then I'm going to move on. Well, they still didn't think so after a year. And uh, I started looking around 
and I found the, the company uh, Signs and Glassworks, and they promised me they would buy a computer as soon as they hired me because they wanted my artwork skills in their, in their company. So I moved on. Okay, so I've talked a little bit, and, and we'll talk more a lot more about the card stuff later on, but this is Signs and Glassworks is kind of where that begins. I've talked a little bit about uh, that company on my show before, not a lot, because quite frankly, um, I don't know a lot about it. I, I see that you also moved on to a company called Chromium Graphics. Is that the same company, or were they different divisions? It, it's the same company. They, they, because it became so popular, they changed the name of the company. Basically, when I got there, they weren't doing any plastics. They weren't doing the type of printing that you're, you think of us as. What they were doing, and they were pretty good at it, too. They were printing glass and mirrors for the bar you know, like uh, Budweiser, Coors, all the liquor companies, that sort of thing. And the reason they got involved with that was the two guys, you know, were getting out of college and they had to get an opportunity to do a mirror for a car. It was like a vintage car or something. And they wanted to print something on the mirror and they were, they figured it all out. And it happened that Coors was looking to do some uh, promotional mirrors and they, they hired these two guys not knowing, you know, that they just got started and it turned into a big thing for them. And they, got a whole big factory started and doing a lot of the bar mirror stuff. You can still go into bars today and see a lot of the signs and glassworks mirrors on the walls. And uh, when I got there, I saw what they were doing. And, and the way that the chromium stuff kind of developed was I took what they were doing, but I went up to the, there, there were two, two gentlemen. There was uh, Larry Longabardi, who was like the bean counter. He took care of the finances of the company. And then there was Doug Levis and he was the creative end. He was more like a an artist kind of end of it. And, and basically I worked with him directly. I went into his office one day and I said, Hey, what you guys are doing, you can actually do sort of like paper printing and it'll open up your market a lot. And his eyes got real wide and he goes, Ooh, tell me more. <laughs> so I explained to him how they could take this process. And I added a few things to it, such as the whites. They weren't doing any whites. And, and that's what turned into the chromium process. Oh, wow. And so this was the early 90s, you would say, right? Right. And they, they still didn't have computers when I first got there. Um, they trusted me to, you know, explain to them that's, you know, this is back in 1990. I think Photoshop was just released in, in 1990. And, uh, you know, they had Illustrator and Photoshop. And what I saw those things can do, I, I wanted to develop their art department. He gave me a full okay to go ahead and, and buy, I got basically, I think, eight computers, they were at, at that time, they were the top of the line Macintosh computers. I got a scanner and uh, some laser printers, and, and we hired a few more artists, and, and then we took off from there. And for those of you that are listening at home, Jim sent me a video this week. Of, I guess you would call it like kind of your design room and then the production floor. Uh, from 1993 and it's kind of like a little time capsule so I will make sure he's given me permission I'll post that on social media so you guys can see that it was a lot of fun watching that um, I have a lot of card related questions that kind of fall in this time frame we'll come back to those in just a few minutes um, I want to sure. talk about some of your other stops after that though um, it looks like after your time at Chromium Graphics or SGW um, you worked for a tequila company you did some of their design work. Um, well, you did your homework. <laughs> you, you worked for another company called Chrome FX. Um, you, right. were, you worked Bo for both of those companies. Both of those companies were actually started by the same owner of Signs and Glassworks. When they closed down Chromium Signs and Glassworks, he went off there on his own and started some new projects because he got a lot of money when he sold the company to the banks, and he wanted to do something new 
and he started a tequila company and he, and he already knew my skills so he had me help design the uh the logo and the bottle and 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 basically become the art director for the trago tequila okay uh, that pro- that uh probably had some nice perks to go along with it right <laughs> well, I'm not a drinker, so oh, right. <laughs> I'm actually not even a card collector either. I mean, I use my graphic skills for a lot. It took me to a lot of different weird places in my life, but but basically, it's like uh, I I just treat it as fun. I, you know, people pay me to scribble for a living, and you can't beat that. <laughs> right. Um, so then you also worked at a company called DreamWorks, but you said that's not maybe the DreamWorks that we might know more of. Can you tell me a little about that, real quick? Yeah, I actually worked for the regular DreamWorks company. They were doing some Jurassic Park stuff, and they wanted to use the chromium process for that. But the company I was working for was in Pasadena, and uh, it was like uh, kind of high-end, uh, fine art-type uh, lenticular work. Um, since I knew how to do 3D stuff, I can do 3D modeling on the computers, and I had some experience doing lenticular. I actually have a patent on using a camera with one lens to create 3D, uh, 3D images, so... You know, I'm, I'm a tinker. I, when I was in college, I, I, I studied art and science because I love science, too. So I, I tinker with stuff, and I always try to make something different. <laughs> All right. So uh, before we close out kind of the career overview segment, I want to ask you two questions here. And your answers might be the same for both of them, and that's fine. Um, I imagine that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of options for you to choose from here. But I want to ask you, out of everything that you've done, um, what is your favorite non-sports card related project that you've worked on? Well, that's easy to answer. Star Wars. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm, I'm a science okay. fiction buff. So, and, so and tell that, me a little about my, that. Well, when we were working with Chromium, Topps was doing a Star Wars line. So I got to do you know, all those Star Wars cards back then. And then actually when the company closed, because uh, my work was starting to get known a little bit outside, I actually got some freelance jobs with Kellogg's Serial doing some Star Wars advertising for them, too. So, yeah, Star Wars. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, that's that, I guess that would be a pretty easy answer. So then the yeah. next one, I don't know, you know, it might be the same answer, but I wanted to ask you what um, non-sports card related project, and it could be anything, doesn't have to be cards in general, um, that you're the most proud of. The most proud of would probably be the very first uh, top trading cards for the... Basically, people don't know this, though. We did a, um, a, foot, a very limited, small football job in 1992 for Tops because they wanted to test us out to see if we could get stuff out on time and whether our graphics were good enough for what they were doing, and they wanted to make sure the cards were going to work. So we did a very small run with football cards, and then we did the first run of the uh, uh, Tops Finest baseball cards in 93, and it just, it just took off. Okay, so then let, let's transition then into the cards. Um, I was going to ask you if you collected when you were a kid, but um, it seems like the answer to that is no, right? Nope. <laughs> I, I, I liked, uh, I think I actually a long time ago, Topps used to make some uh, Valentine's cards with monsters on them, and I liked monsters when I was a kid, so I think I had some of those. But basically, I was, I was more into Mad Magazine and, I don't know, Space and <laughs> that sort of thing. So you probably never even got the full, I mean, well, you were the behind the scenes. You never probably got the full experience of, of getting a box of cards and opening it. Have you ever opened a box of cards? Only the ones I made myself so I can make sure they're right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We might have to change that someday. Maybe uh, once this whole coronavirus <laughs> thing is done, maybe I'll, I'll send you some cards. Um, mm. All right. So here we are many years later. 
Um, and, and we, you know, all my listeners for the most part are collectors. I would say, you know, we collect these little cardboard pictures of athletes. It's still very popular. I try to humanize things a bit more at this show and explain, uh, to people why these things are so significant to us. You know, we're not just collecting pictures, they're relics. Um, they tell our own personal history and then they tell the history of the sport as well. So, uh, I think I speak for the collecting community when I say that Chrome Sports cards have always been pretty popular, but they've really blown up lately. Um, Top still produces Chrome baseball cards, but they don't have an NBA license. So the only company that makes NBA cards right now is called Panini, and they've ramped oh, okay. up the number of Chromium releases as of late. They actually, this was around 2012, they filed two trademark applications for the word for the phrase Chromium, and Panini Chromium, uh, but Panini. Wow, I didn't uh, know that. That's yeah, very interesting. <laughs> Tops Tops fought it, so I don't think they actually got um, to use it in the capacity they wanted to, um, which is interesting though, because uh, a part of me wonders, well, maybe Tops doesn't even have that right either. Maybe that's you guys and and SG, uh, SGW and and Chromium Graphics, but um so we've talked about that company a little bit earlier but now i want to focus on the cards so you talked about um you went to one of your co-workers and you said hey i think we can do this on paper as well um so tell me some of the next steps if you remember that you know he was interested so what came after that i mean the actual process of creating the cards well how did um you said we can put this on paper so how did that well, I, I turn into to, sports I, I cards? said we could print like paper we actually print on on a, a, a pet plastic sheet so there, there's paper on the back for the backing of the cards okay but the actual cards themselves are plastic um to explain the process basically you're taking a clear piece of plastic then you're, you're re- reversing the image that you're going to print on it you print down the four color process cymak colors and then you print a white behind that for the areas that you don't want the foil to show through. So you can do percentages of white so some foil shows through, or you can do 100% white so no foil shows through. So anywhere you have a blank area with no white ink, that's where the foil is going to show through on the card. And after you print the four color process colors, then you, you print the white. Then there's the, the most important part of it is you're pr- printing a clear, copious kind of uh, ink on where you want the texture to be. The texture can be anything. It can be an outline, it can be a pattern, um, it can be stars, it can be lines, it can be anything. And what happens is after you print that thick ink on top of the plastic sheet, you laminate it through a laminator with a silver foil. The silver foil wraps around that texture so that when you turn the plastic over and look through the backside, you're seeing the image and that thick ink is bending the foil and that's what creates the texture. Okay, wow. So, um you know, traditionally we've seen a, a bit of a premium for these cards, and I, I think now you know hearing about that process of them being made is not just putting them on cardboard and and uh, cutting them up. Um, yeah, you know, it it a kind of expensive printing process. Yeah. yeah, it seems like it justifies the premium a bit. Um, so. Um, before I ask this next question, I do want to give credit to another collector named Tanner. He's got a website called TanManBaseballFan.com. Um, he alerted me to um, this part of card history a couple years ago. I didn't know about it. So even though Topps released the first uh, Chromium card in conjunction with SJ- SGW, which is my understanding, you guys first approached Upper Deck around 1991. And I've seen That's a, true. a lot of people don't know that <laughs> I've seen a prototype for a set called Silver Sluggers. 
Um, can you tell me what inspired this pitch to Upper Deck? You know, what did this pitch look like? And, um, you know, can you explain their receptiveness or lack of to that? I, because I was in the art department, I, have, I don't have full knowledge of all that. But basically what it was is we came up with this process and we knew we had something good. And we wanted to get a contract with somebody instead of send, you know, selling onesie twosies. We figured if we get a contract, you're going to make a lot more money out of it. Now, Upper Deck was very, located very close to where we were. We actually moved just a, <laughs> right, a block away from them at one point. Um, but were they basically, in Carlsbad they, at that time? Yes. yes. Okay. And, and, and when they took the process there, they at that time were more hooked on doing holographic stuff because they thought that was going to be the up and coming thing, which it, it was fun and, and there were a lot of stuff that's been done with holograms. Um, but they weren't that interested in our process. So the first thing we did is went from them over to Tops, and Tops just loved it. And, and we basically got an exclusive uh, with Tops so that nobody else can use it once Tops had it. And that's what kind of made it take off. It's funny, you, you said that almost word for word. My notes say, it looks like Upper Deck went with holograms instead. In retrospect, yep. that was a horrible decision. So um, <laughs> I don't know. I started at, in the end part of uh, Chromium. I started messing around with just to get something different. I was working with lenticular. I was going to call it Stratochrome, where you're mixing the, uh, the texture and the metallization with the lenticular stuff. And then I was also mixing it with some holochromes, uh, holographic stuff, too. But, oh, wow. Uh, you know, by, by that time, the company was basically sold to the banks and uh, the banks didn't understand the printing processes or the market that we were trying to be in. And, and basically it fell through after that. And, and, and because they let the patents die, um, basically at this point, anybody can do that process. Right. Um, yeah. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. But that's, you know, you flip over a Panini Chromium card and there's no patent information on it at all. Well, we worked with Panini a little bit, and they did some cutting for our cards, too. Um, oh, and, okay. Uh, it, that yeah, would have been so we, in the we, we worked with them in the past. They like our product, and we, we were using them because they had a slitter cutter, and you know, we, we had a working relationship with them. Now, um, you mentioned the, the Upper Deck stuff was around 1991. Um, I believe the first Topps Finest card was 1993. But I also... two was that first football one. Was, okay. It was a very okay, limited good. small test run. And then in 93, after Topps okayed it and liked it, that was the very first uh, thing. There was, there was a, I think, 199 cards in that set um, when we did that first set. And uh, it was like, Topps at that point wasn't doing so good, actually. The whole card industry was kind of, you know, not, nothing new going on. And they didn't have any premium cards yet. And they were looking for something. And that's one reason they chose our... our our process and then uh, once they released it it was like an instant hit yeah we actually call that era uh from the late 80s to the early 90s we call it the junk wax era because yeah. <laughs> everything was mass produced and like you said there really wasn't any innovation uh and that's kind of why things died out for a while well, um, that that era is an interesting era too because some people loved it or they loved it back then, and then they didn't like it later on because they thought it was too glitch, you know, too glitzy and, and you know too much going on with the premium cards, and the prices were pretty crazy too. Yeah. Um, now you guys at SGW, you did. Uh, it looks like you also made a set, a comic book set for a company called Comic Images in 1992. So was that kind of somewhere in between trying to pitch to tops, or do you know anything no, it was about, about that? about the same time. Same it time? was about the same time we did the comic book stuff, and it actually took off pretty well, too. Um, I think 
trying to remember. You know, this was 30 years ago. We're talking about something. <laughs> I know. I remember some things. I'm putting here. you on the spot but, here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but basically, it was, uh, we dealt with Marvel. We were doing, we did like the uh, Death of Superman, and we did the re- re- revision of uh, Superman. We did a lot of the uh, X-Men stuff. Um, we worked with uh, Lady Death um, with uh, Brian Polito. We did like some of the very first, actually one of our first comic covers, I think was with Valiant. Um, I think that was Bloodshot, where it was like an add-on piece onto the cover. It wasn't a full cover. Uh-huh. And then by the time we got around to Marvel, we were doing full covers. And then uh, when Image got involved after they let, you know, the whole thing where you know, the artist left Marvel and started Image, they were right there in San Diego too. And uh, we had Jim Lee in our office and a lot of the other guys, and I went into the Image offices, and, and we got some coverage going with them too. You know, the, the ties that Marvel had with the card industry in that time are all pretty interesting. I think they actually purchased Fleer at one point, or maybe mm. the other way around, but the two companies were together at one point. Um, now, right. you Topps uh, was working to be ex- exclusive with the, the Chromium process, but you also right. worked I with... I think that was for about 10 years, I believe. Okay. So you also worked with a company in 1993 called Classic. You did a Draft Picks basketball set. Um, so was that kind of before that exclusive started, or it looks like around the same time once again? Who, who did this, this card job? It was a set called Classic. Um, it was like a, a college set, and uh, it has the oh, SGW you know I bet patent because it was a, I bet because it was a college set, that's why there was an okay to do oh, it okay. besides Tops. That makes yeah, sense. I mean, yeah, because Tops wouldn't like it if we were starting to do cards for someone else, and I believe that there was some some in or out you can get in to be, we were able to do those because it wasn't part of the contract or something like that. Right. Yeah. I think that was only a one-year thing, too, so maybe... Um, Maybe Tops didn't like that. Who knows? We, we ended up doing, for Tops, we ended up, we started out with the, the first one being a football, small football run. Then we did the baseball. Then basket. I think you're, you kind of concentrate on basketball, right? Right. And, and yeah, so the basketball stuff uh, came about, mm, I think, 1993 or four, mm-hmm. I believe. Yep. Yeah. The first, and, yeah, your uh, first finest set was for basketball was 93, 94. Yeah, it was like the first premium basketball release, and uh, uh, trying to remember. I think uh, when they they came out, um, they they had no premium basketballs until that point, and and then I think that was one of the first sets that we had refractors. Refractors were a big thing with the chromium stuff too. That's what made it get so exciting, I guess, because people wanted those refractor cards. So um, how, how is the, was the printing process any different for creating the refractors? The refractors were basically the same exact process. The only thing you changed was the silver foil that you put on the back of them became a holographic foil. And that way the light reflect, you know, refracted when you moved it around in the lights and you get the different colors shimmering off of it. Okay. Um, so this was, like we said, this was around 93. Um, Tops, you, you worked with them. They worked with the patent. Top, you sent me a letter, or you showed me a letter that Tops sent you guys basically saying this was a smashing success. We hope to keep working with you. Um, so then what was the extent of your involvement with Tops going forward now that they already had the technology kind of at their use? And they were ha- real happy because... Uh... Basically, like I said, their card sales weren't doing so good, and then they started this thing, and and it went up a lot. Um, I think like 
even our company was starting to make like about $12 million when we first started doing this stuff too. And then Tops, their, their bottom line was going up high because of, you know, people collecting these things and getting excited about buying and selling them wise too. I mean, the, you know, people were starting to pay $20 a pack. I think there's six or seven cards per pack kind of thing. Yeah. And, and that was unheard of. <laughs> and, and then the refractors, because people started collecting those, those, those were getting up to like, 30 40 50 dollars and then they, after that years later they started going up to 500 dollars a card i've yeah. seen i've seen on ebay le lately that there's some people on ebay trying to sell some of these refractor cards from the original top set that we did back in 93 that they're, they're like five six thousand dollars yeah it's uh well we could do a it's whole insane. episode <laughs> on that it's gotten it's gotten uh it's only getting crazier as we speak yeah. um so um the uh, let's talk a little bit about the top's finest cards. Did you have anything to do with the peels that were placed on those? Yeah, I basically had a little bit to do with everything since I was the creative. I was basically two things in the company. I was the art director, and I was running like ten other artists there. And then also, I was also head of the uh, uh, research team to do new products and things. And you know, the, the reason we came up with the the protector thing was it. Basically, it was a good selling point. Um, the protectors were, were to help the card remain mint. And there was a little bit of confusion when we first did them because people got the cards and they're wondering, well, should I peel this off or leave it on? What's more valuable? <laughs> because if you peel it off, you get that really nice, you know, reflective version of the, the card. But if you leave it on there, it's protected. So when you sell it, you're going to make more money. So uh, I'm not sure how people figured what to do on this. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I can tell you as recent as this week, I think I saw someone post a card and say to peel or not to peel. We're still debating uh, <laughs> that with these cards <laughs> decades later. Uh, there was uh, one point where the um, they had the peel where the, the words on it were kind of diagonal. And then I think they switched one year to where the words um, were more vertical. Do you know anything about that? I have no idea. It was okay. probably just an art choice at some point. There's so no you, reason to be one way or the other. I think, let me think about, uh, I, I, really, I, I usually made them diagonal when I did the artwork for those things. So I'm not sure why there was even a set the other way. It probably don't make any difference. It didn't change anything, really. We, we're always just assuming that there's some secret reason where it, it very nah. well could have been just like, no, nah, that's just <laughs> it, what it we could did. Have been just on that, yeah, it could have been just on that set. Somebody made an art choice to do it the other way when they set up the artwork. <laughs> All right. Uh, as with every process and every piece of information, then we know that there are hiccups along the way. And one thing that collectors have dealt with from 1993, probably until I've noticed it a lot until around 1998, is greening. Um, or yep. There's a phrase we use in the hobby called hulking, because at some point Rick Smith <laughs> goes from looking like uh, Bruce Banner to the Incredible Hulk over time. Um, so there's a lot of theories as to why this happens. Some people say humidity. Some people say it's oxidation of the materials used to manufacture the cards. Some people are no, convinced. It's a... Oh, go ahead. What, <laughs> what do you think? What, what caused it was ignorance. <laughs> okay. Basically, we weren't in the card industry when we first did this, and we didn't know a whole lot about printing cards. And again, because we're printing on plastic instead of paper, that changes a lot of things in, the, in, in how you print it. So when we first did this uh, and we were using inks, we were using an ink that wasn't UV protected. So that after time, the UV light was changing the colors on the card. We finally realized that, I think about a year after we started printing, saying, hey, what's going on here? And uh, we changed our ink formulation. So after that point, then they were fine. We also started doing another thing too, is we would take the sheets and after they were all finished, we would 
uh, UV coat the fronts of them, and that did two things. It protected the cards because, again, it's not paper, it's plastic. They, were, you know, they would be able to scratch easily, for one thing, and then also by putting that UV coating on there, it protected the colors more, too. So um, I want to get your opinion on this then. There are some collectors out there that are adamant if they keep these things locked away, which, you know, cards aren't any fun if they're locked away, but if they keep these things locked away, they will not green over time. I don't know for sure, but that makes sense because basically what changes the colors is UV light. UV light is, is, is you know, getting rid of the... Uh, red colors and it'll leave blue colors you know like if you see a sign out on a store and it's not UV protected you notice that all you know after time it, it all the blue colors are still there but all the you know red colors are gone and that's because UV light is is destroying the inks and uh, so if, if you kept you know the card in the original package or in a closet somewhere and you pulled it out the colors more than likely I would guess would be fine but if you left them out on a desk or especially in the sun they're going to change this is something that that has been debated for years and years and years by collectors. And all we had to do is ask you. So <laughs> it's just a, it's a printing thing. So I know the answer to that. <laughs> it's, yeah. See, we're not. Yeah, we're, we're the basketball people. We're not the printing people. So we should have just gone to the printing people to begin with. That was our mm. mistake. Um, so I was looking back at some of my Chrome cards this morning and some of my refractors, and I noticed that, you know, I always like to look at the back for that SGW patent or just to see what all's written on the back. It seemed like most things through 2002 had that SGW patent on it. And then around 2003, I noticed one and it actually dealt with UV, um, called dimensional FX. And it looks like that was owned by Chromium graphics still. Yeah. Um, yes. and what, that was, what happened was. When the, when the company was called S&G, that stands for Signs and Glassworks. Since they weren't really doing as much work in the sign business, they were still doing it, uh, but they, weren't, they were making way more money doing the, uh, the chromium stuff. And, and Dimensional FX was another name for it. And then they, because they actually changed the name of the company to chromium, they, um, you know, the, the patents would need to change and, and, and because it's whoever owns, you know, whatever company owns the patent, that's what name goes on the card. Okay, interesting. Um, and so I, I yeah, because I saw that Dimensional FX label on all of my tops cards up to 2009, and then that's when they lost the basketball license. So that's, to me, that's when they stopped, even though they kept doing baseball, but I don't care about that stuff. Um, I, I actually left the company, let me think now. I started in 1990, um, and, and I think I stayed there. Oh, I, I think your resume said I, I 2003. Left. Yeah, about 2002, I think, is when I left. So I, I was there probably like 11 years or so. So anything after that point, you know, I was doing my own thing or working for other companies or doing Chromium with uh, the original owner under other names and, and that sort of thing. So I really don't know a whole lot about what happened to the company or the process. Actually, the company closed down eventually, too. I'm, I'm not, I can't remember exactly what year. It was only like maybe two years after I left or so. Because when I left... We, our original company had maybe 200 employees when we were going big and, and doing a lot of stuff. And as, as the, uh, the bank took over things and the original owners were gone, um, they started cutting out a lot of the comic book work because they didn't like violence. And <laughs> so oh, that, well. that took a lot of the, the, <laughs> you know, the, the money away from the company. Right. And violence sells, right? <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like 
a lot of the comic books, depending on which comic book it was, would, would have a little bit of sexuality to them or violence to them or whatever. I mean, it's a comic book. Right. And uh, since, since the people run, in the banks were running it, um, it was bean counters instead of creative people. Um, they said, we're not going to do that anymore. And they cut like half the revenue coming into the company. And eventually the, the company died. Um, they, they ran it into the ground. There wasn't enough money coming in. And, and, and time was changing things, too. I mean, we were doing that for 10, 11 years already. And at that point, people were used to it. And it wasn't as exciting as it was originally. And, you know, things change. Right. And you mentioned, too, that, um, well, and, and we've talked about it a little, that Panini's stuff doesn't even have that on it because anyone can pretty much do this printing process now, right? There, there are still, I, my guess is about two two to four companies that can still understand and do this process. It's not that hard to understand, but if people haven't done it before, they're not sure what to do. And they look, especially because when I first came up with this, the first thing people did when they looked at the cards, they tried to rub it to see if they can feel the texture. But the yeah. texture's on the backside. That's why it was kind of weird. I mean, you see texture, but you couldn't feel it kind of thing. And yeah. uh, it, basically, there's a company, I worked in Minnesota for a while because, again, this company was... Um, was interested in, do, in reviving the chromium process and using it for advertising for um, different companies and that sort of thing. And they hired me. They, they said, here, we're going to double your, your income. We're going to give you your own office, a secretary. And, and, you know, if you just come to Minnesota and teach us how to do this stuff. And uh, so I went there for about two, three years. And my wife hated the minus 28 degrees in Minnesota. <laughs> so I basically ended up coming down to Florida here. Uh, I, I've noticed you you've, you're hitting the coast as with your different moves. Um, yeah, I love the ocean and I like you know warmer weather. <laughs> you mentioned that there's a couple companies that still do this. I think and it's not Panini themselves that actually do it. I think they use a company called Cardamundi, and that does Cardamundi, playing cards. Cardamundi, yep. Cardamundi, we worked with them in the past too, and they still do the stuff. And then the uh, Tops is still using a. a, a uh, Carlson up in uh, Minnesota. Well, it just happened by happenstance. When I went to Minnesota, I was only like two miles away from the company that's still doing the, the chromium stuff for tops. <laughs> oh, wow. So they, they, when they found out I moved up there, they started talking to me and we were <laughs> working out some things together. And, and, and so I still have a relationship with them right now, too. All right. Well, um, look, it's been an honor talking to you today. Before I close out, I have a couple more questions for you. Um, Earlier this year, you posted a, I guess you could call it like a retirement announcement where you mentioned that you're still going to create children's books um, and, and do, you know, some freelance work here and there. So first off, how are you enjoying retired life? I love it. You love it? <laughs> it's like, I, well, I'm not working for somebody else anymore. I mean, my whole entire career, I'm always working for some, you know, I enjoyed it. I like doing anything that's creative. But, you know, it wasn't my own stuff. And I've always had in the back of my head that I wanted to do children's books. So when I had the chance to say, okay, I'm done with everybody. I'm going to do my own thing now. And basically, that's what I'm going to do. I, basically, I bought a parrot about two years ago. And I'm thinking, well, what do I want to write my children's books about? And I thought, well, I'm going to write about a little kid named Jimmy, which happens to be my name, and, and his parrot. So that's what I'm going to do for the probably next couple of years. <laughs> awesome. Um, and now, you know, I have to ask this. Do you ever see yourself doing anything sports card related again in the future? I get people. I don't actually. How did you get in contact with me? I'm curious about that. <laughs> so I was on eBay looking for obscure stuff in the wee hours of the night, as I always do. And um, somebody had a test refractor of an old Topps Finest card. 
And to try um, and prove the history of that test refractor, they had one of your old business cards. And uh, I said, I wait a second, I got to get in touch with this guy. So that's that's <laughs> how, that's the weird kind of roundabout way that I found you. Yeah, because I get, I get calls like that every once in a while. I've got calls from Canada and I've got calls from uh, a lot of different places, people just researching. Because back when they were younger, they were collecting these things and it happened to be a big thing in their life for some reason. And they would call me up and say, hey, who are, are you the guy that did this? And I go, yeah, I'm the one that messed around with it. <laughs> Well, Jim, it has been an absolute honor to talk to you today and, and to learn more about the hobby and your life work. Um, I don't know you know, if you realized or not, I know you said you didn't collect, but there are a lot of people that have very passionate, um, even emotional ties to your work. So to hear from you firsthand um, is a major privilege. And um, before I let you go, I want to give you a chance to offer if you have any final remarks or if you want to plug anything that you're working on or anything that you want to say, um, thank you once again in these next few moments are yours. Well, I'm, I'm glad you, you contacted me. I mean, you're a very nice young man. And uh, it was kind of fun to talk about that old stuff. I haven't thought about it for a while. And uh, as far as mentioning something, I'll mention that uh, Jeff Kahn is a graphic artist that works in San Diego. He worked with me on a lot of this stuff, so I wanted to get his name in there. And then also when I was doing freelance and I was still doing the Chrome, I did uh, a whole card set for the uh, Tintin movie that came out by Spielberg. And that was all a, a freelance kind of thing that I was doing on that. And uh, a, a lady named uh, Teresa Jackson, she helped me with that. And she was very professional. And so I just wanted to give her a, a little thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Jim. And uh, I figure we might be talking to you again in the future. So until then, thank you. All right. Thank you, Kyle. Bye-bye. All right, there you have it. Once again, a big thanks to Jim for taking the time to come on the show and talk about his career and the early days of Chromium Cards. He was also kind enough to send me some extras for you guys, including a video of the um, art room and the production floor from 1993 at Chromium Graphics. And then also he sent along a letter that he received from Tops. So I pieced these together with some other pictures and I put them in a video on my YouTube channel. And those of you that already subscribe, you probably saw that a day early. Those of you that don't subscribe, what are you waiting for, right? Please um, you know, do that if you want to support this kind of content and see more of that in the future. I'd also like to encourage you guys to share this episode. I figure there are a lot of non-basketball collectors out there that would like to hear this one. We all have social media channels, and then that's, that's just one easy way that you can support me. Share this episode, retweet it. Uh, put it in your story, whatever you like to do, any help would be much appreciated. As for me, you guys can find me throughout the week on my Instagram, which is at Wax Museum Podcast, or my Twitter, which is at Wax Museum PC. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store, tag Taco Bell, and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. 